0: Welcome once again to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm your host, Ivan Mawaride. I'm a pastor and a democracy activist who spent many a nights in maximum security prisons fighting for justice in Zimbabwe. On this platform, I glean from individuals who made some unconventional decisions about what they give parts or all of their lives to. You know what I've been thinking about lately is regret, the things I regret doing or the things I regret not doing over the course of my fairly short life so far. And I have to tell you that it never gets easy facing your own taunting regrets. Yet strangely, those same regrets are also part of what makes our lives a story worth telling with lessons worth learning. My guest today is Mo an incredibly unassuming and gentle lady from Cambodia. Her actions have changed the lives of so many women in Southeast Asia. Listening to Musa Kua talking about losing her parents to a horrible genocide, and then her work of saving sex trafficking victims, and eventually becoming a government minister who gets hounded out of the country, you can hear far off in the background, the taunting voice of regret. Yet, Musokuwa embraces it and keeps on going. Like I always say about these podcasts, you want to stick around for this one. Musokuwa, thank you so much for joining me today on the Frontlines of Freedom. It is amazing to read your story and to know about the things that you have accomplished. So welcome today.
1: Oh, thank you, Evan. And thank you to Frontline Stories. It is together that we can make this journey for justice come true to those who don't have a voice, especially women.
0: Especially women. And and you've been a champion for women in so many ways, besides being a champion for your daughters. Uh, you've been a champion for women women. In, in Southeast Asia, in in in, in fact, any, in many parts of the world where women have heard your story. And I want to start there. Cambodia, that's home for you, isn't it?
1: Yes, home, continues to be home, will always be home.
0: Mm, mm. It will always be home. And... Many years ago, you left Cambodia on your way to Paris, uh, your parents sending you uh, on an education trip, and then you found yourself eventually in the United States. But I want you to take us back to being born and growing up in Cambodia with your parents. Um, what was Cambodia like in those days when you were born and you were growing up as a little girl?
1: I would divide the history and the so- Cambodian society into three parts. So thank you for asking me to start with the first part, which is my childhood. I was born in 1954, one year after the independence from the French. Cambodia was a French colony for, for a long time, century. So 1954, the year I was born until 1968, was the year of, was the moment of, like Renaissance for Cambodia or peace, Cambodia was known as the peace of the pearl of the the of Southeast Asia. The pearl because Prince uh, the King at that time Prince Yanuk at that time wanted Cambodia to be uh, non-aligned, to be uh, independent, not uh, connected, not involved in any of the geopolitics. It was at that time. So I grew up with going to a French school since kindergarten all the way to high school. Uh, And I learned um, many things about uh, the value of education, the value of uh, a strong culture, a strong society, family with love, stability, until 1968. Then the war in Vietnam started, and then 72, 74, 75, the spill over of the Vietnam War was ugly. It was then that we had to flee. We had, and for those who families that can send their children out, like my family, I wouldn't say we were very we were rich, but we were comfortable. And then we had to leave, and that was the first time ever that I left my country, my home, my family. Uh, the nest. I knew nothing else before that. I was shocked. It was terrifying. It was the beginning of a a life uh, that uh, I'm still on until today. And I'm 68 today.
0: There was a really dark period in Cambodia that included uh, a genocide that very few people actually know about. What was that about what happened, what sparked it off, and how many people were killed during that time?
1: Close to 2 million. Some people say 2.5 million, but let's say 2 million. And the population of Cambodia at the time was around uh, 8 million. So why the Khmer Rouge? Why genocide? It started in 1975 when the uh, Khmer Rouge, when the king was overthrown in 1972, and then Cambodia became a republic. The armed forces at the time were backed by the, the Americans because of the war in Vietnam. And then when the war in Vietnam, when America lost the war in Vietnam, Cambodia went with that. That allowed the extreme uh, for uh, the communists of Cambodia um, who had their ideology, ideology was to have a Cambodia to start Cambodia from year zero. That's how uh, extreme they were. They were students who were very in angry, were very, um, dissatisfied with the regime, with the, with the king and also with the republic. They wanted Cambodia for themselves alone again, start from year zero, meaning that People who wore glasses were killed. Not just killed, you know, put, in, put into mass graves.
0: Sokua, did you say people who wore glasses? Yes. Why? Why were people who wore glasses killed?
1: Why? Who are people who wear glasses? Intellectuals. If you start a country, a nation from year zero, that means going back to the farm. They, The, the Khmer Rouge, or Red Khmer, wanted... They people to start from the farm back to the
0: farm. If you wore glasses or if you were known to be educated or to be an intellectual, you are a target. And the idea was to eliminate that whole group of people and start with just basic peasant farmers.
1: Correct. It's not just the, your intellectual uh, background, but also your ethnicity. I am half Chinese. Uh, My mother, my great-grandparents came from China. So we have a a lighter uh, skin. So I am really certain that my mother, my father, were uh, killed because of the color of their skin. Because uh, the Khmer Rouge, the Red Khmer, the communist Khmer, wanted Cambodia to belong to the Khmers or to Cambodians. Pure Cambodians. It was really like the uh, the Hitler, but this is under uh, Khmer Rouge. They wanted peasant people because real pure Khmer people uh, have darker colors because they are from the farm. They live on the farm, while those who have uh, ethnic background, different ethnic background, especially Chinese, because thirty percent of the uh, families were have. Chinese background, especially in the in the urban sector like mine, they uh, the mixed culture, the mixed color gives you this light skin. Therefore, you're not from the farm. And if you have light skin, you wear glasses. You speak in a, a a little bit of uh, uh, even French or English. That you go straight to the mass graves.
0: That is so heartbreaking. I I cannot explain to you how. Difficult it is for me to fathom that. And yet, you know, I don't know how people felt during that time, but your parents had decided to send you out. So this was happening when you were out of the country.
1: Yes, it was. I was out in 1972 and the Khmer Rouge took over in 1975 and stayed until the end of 1979. So in less than four years, they killed close to two, maybe yeah, two million people of their own people, and then they also so they they went after ethnic uh, minorities like the Cham people. Cham uh Cambodians, Khmer people who uh, who are Muslim, very small ethnic uh, community. But they totally eliminated the Cham, the Khmer uh, Muslim.
0: Here you are. You're a young lady. You are you are away from home. And this genocide begins to happen and your parents are killed during that time. You don't, you don't get a chance to go back home until when? When do you return to Cambodia?
1: I went back in 1989. From 72 to 89, I was away.
0: How old were you when you returned to Cambodia?
1: I think I was around 36 or something like that.
0: About 36. And with
1: two children. I left as a a teen. I just graduated from high school. Then I came back with two children, frightened to death, coming to a a city, a country, where everything had been eliminated. No electricity, no power, no no roads. But I was determined to come home.
0: This is the part that breaks my heart along with many of the things that you've been through. You come back home finally, but you have no information as to what happened to your parents. How were they killed and where are they buried? How did you deal with that? The 17 years of of life, of your life where you don't know what I mean, what has become of your parents, the people that sent you away because they wanted you to have a better life and they wanted you to be alive. How do you reconcile their absence when you get back?
1: You can never reconcile that event. It's really, you cannot. And that's why I am on this journey for justice, for truth, you know, and I still need to know how my parents died, especially my mother, because My mother never had an education, you know, in uh, women, uh, Chinese women, uh, Asian women at that time. You rarely go to school. I remember when I was eight years old, sitting next to my mother, I was learning French. I was Mm. reading in French already. And my mother was learning the Khmer alphabet, ABC. I was reading a book already. But there was the moment that moment that I cherished until today. Uh, the value of education. I want my mother, I want women, I want young girls to have an education. Until today, I fight for that. And going back to find my mother is a symbol of saying there cannot be a uh, discrimination because of your gender. But on top of that, you have that warmth of being next to your mom, to your, uh, and my mother was a beautiful woman, a strong woman, a loving, caring uh, mother.
0: In Cambodia, you've gone back, you're with two daughters, you're coming from the United States and you begin a new journey and you become part of civic society in Cambodia and that births another journey where you really begin to represent women. Tell me about how that happened, because there's a point at which you you start to travel around the country, teaching women and teaching them to be involved in the civics of the nation. And you end up mobilizing, I think the figures are something close to 25,000 women who end up running for public office. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, I must also, if I don't say that, my youngest daughter Malika would be very angry at me because she was conceived. She was born in Cambodia, the last child. Yes. I, that, that's the moment when I say I want, a, my late husband and I wanted a daughter, a daughter. We wanted to have another daughter, uh, born in Cambodia. And I was pregnant. I was very pregnant, still walking around. The urban, the very poor urban sector of the city of Phnom Penh, uh, with this uh, the new organization called Khmera or Cambodian women to help urban uh, women who had just come out of genocide and the war to start a life again. So it is through the eyes of the women, through the lives of the women, that I see myself uh, learning about my culture. Because if you remember, I was educated in French. By the French, in in the French school, when I remember very well, I was maybe eight or nine. If I I spoke um, Khmer or doing Cambodian, we were punished by the French kids for speaking your own language. That was that strict, you know. And then when I went back to Cambodia, that was the moment when I said, "I am Khmer, and I have, but I don't know how to be Khmer." It start all over, and in the most difficult circumstances. At the same time, looking at for my looking for my mother, looking for my parents all the time, especially my mother. It gave me the strength, it gave me that sense of, that motivation. It gave me that sense of responsibility and accountability to to the women of Cambodia.
0: You say some really powerful things in that, looking for your culture and looking, starting afresh to find out who you are and to and to and to learn more about about yourself, about your own uh, your own roots and your daughters. How do you explain to your daughters about the journey you've walked so far? Their missing grandparents. And, and trying to get them to understand that this is where we come from. And even though what has happened here has happened, we still must be proud of it.
1: It has not been easy, Evan. It has been to me, you know, I was trying to figure out who I, who am I? Am I French? Am I Chinese? Am I Cambodian? What am I? And then bringing the raising three children at the same time. And at that time, it was the, the country had just been Opened by because there was a international embargo against Cambodia because of the one party state because of the way Cambodia was was run by the Khmer Rouge and those who came after were gave the Cambodian people no freedom. So learning about myself, I also had to protect my children, my three my three daughters. Because I was such a public figure, I was everywhere in the city, everywhere on the street. People recognized me and I was doing very, very um, things that are uh, usually not done. For example, working with uh, sex workers, you know, listening to the stories of sex workers, going to the most, the poorest, poorest part of Cambodia. Uh, so I couldn't take my, my daughters along with me. I couldn't tell them exactly what was going on because I wanted to protect them. So they were kept in, uh, they went to an international school all along. And physically, uh, I was not home a lot. It's Cambodia is a big country. And to, with my position, um, I had to travel a lot. Um, I had to run, run a campaign. I had to uh, run as candidate, stand as candidate, get elected. I was all over the country. So I regret that very 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 much my but my daughter's knew all along uh where i was what i was doing it was just like a, a part of the family that we don't talk about but they they understand because they they are now hold these values of for justice for gender justice uh, it's been painful in terms of Not uh, Now I regret. I wish I had done more. I wish I had told my my daughters what it was. But my daughters today say, Ma, you don't have to tell us. We know.
0: I'm getting goosebumps when you say that because, you know, I have daughters. And sometimes the hardest part of the work that I've done as an activist who spent time in prison, who was tortured, and who in a sense almost caused their lives to be in danger. The hardest part is explaining to my children what I was doing, why I was doing it. And I'm, I'm, I'm heartened to know that there, there's a point at which your children understood, your daughters understood that which you were doing. But, but it seems like the regret still haunts you. I mean, I sometimes feel that even though they understand. Sometimes when I sit on my own, I I'm that sense of should I have done it or should I not have done it still sometimes knocks on my door.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, I remember until today that I don't want to say the sense of guilt, but as a mother, you always carry that, you know, because you're such a public person. It was uh, during a campaign uh, election. I ran again for a, a seat in the parliament and I won. But I got, it was the last day of the campaign, and I got a phone call. I was right in the middle of a market campaigning. I got a phone call, and the phone call say, your daughter was found unconscious on the street last night. She is at the hospital right now. She was in an accident, a, a motor accident. And I was up north for um, four or five hours because of a campaign. I finished my speech, and I said, no, I've got to go, i got to go. But when I saw her, it was like, it's too late. And she has this car now. But at the same time, today, today, I, you have to ask her how, how it meant to her, how it means to her now. But to me, today, I would say I could have done better. But at the same time, I don't want to punish myself or, or go back to the past. What we have to do together, Malika or Devi or Tida. Those are the names of my daughters is look at the women today. What can we do for them? You know, they're not privileged like us. Look at their education. Look at their employment. They work hours and hours in factories, making clothes that are sold in, in Western markets, and they make nothing in return. So let's think, let's fight, let's fight together for them rather than going to the past and and say, how I could have explained things to my daughter.
0: Let me let me just say this, and I know that either your daughters or some other people close to you would have said it, that Sokua, your life is, is just inspirational. And I know that even though you may have regrets and you may look back and think I could have done better, the things you have done, which we don't have enough time to talk about, but we're still going to talk about a few of those things, The things you have done have changed so many people's lives. There's no doubt about that. But your journey continues. You spoke just now that you became an elected official. So you became a member of parliament. Yes. And that journey begins now in mainstream politics. What was it like being in mainstream politics? And how did you eventually come uh, to a place where you became the vice president of one of the leading opposition parties in Cambodia.
1: My father always told me, my daughter, one, you can do anything, but one thing you cannot do is join politics. Ha. Huh? <laughs> Only if he knew. He, my daughter said, my father said, and my mother also said, you can marry, just don't marry a, someone out of your color. Marry a Cambodian. My husband, my late husband was American.
0: So you did, you did everything that they said, everything they said, don't do, you did.
1: Yes, don't do, I do.
0: <laughs>
1: but, you
0: know, to, to me, it's
1: where you are at the moment. You look at the, the things that happened today. And, but you have to think about what if you don't do, if you don't change things that need to be changed. When is it going to be changed, and who is going to change for it? For those who cannot change, for those who cannot have a voice. My consist- constituents are, as I said before, the the women. Uh, my issues are uh, reproductive health, uh, gender equality, gender justice, and women in politics. I I didn't know I was into politics. You know, uh, Cambodia. This is the last stage of Cambodia after the Khmer Rouge fell. There was a Agreement between the Western countries, um, international communities to sign a Paris Peace Accord for Cambodia to start Cambodia again with a new election managed and handled, paid for by the international community, but ran by the United Nations. Uh, I didn't join politics. I remain at that time in 1993. I remained as an activist. I wanted to be part of the peace movement to have elections with a uh, peaceful elections. And then so I missed that uh, five years. And in 1998, it was uh, the fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing. Then uh, the UNIFEM, or UN, UN Women at the time, said, cool please help us um, bring women of Cambodia to Beijing. And that's when, uh, as my organization, I was one of the leaders of the women's movement. So we put together a 1,000 women. We brought together a 1,000 women from different parts of Cambodia, from the hills, from the countryside, from the other side of the river. You name it, we brought them all together. And uh, we put an agenda for women of Cambodia, for Beijing. And as a symbol, uh, the 1,000 the women brought a piece, a meter of a cloth, that were put together. So we had a whole kilometer of uh, cloth for a project called Women Weaving the World Together. And a part of that uh, uh, one kilometer, uh, we brought to Beijing and I handed it over to the first lady of America, Hillary Clinton, heard her speech saying about uh, women's rights as human rights. And get into politics, and I joined politics then.
0: So you join politics, and uh, you become part of a coalition government, which you eventually have to leave that government. Why did you leave? And I know that you had become the the first woman minister of the women's ministry in Cambodia. So you you eventually leave, but tell us about that experience in in that government and why you eventually left.
1: Yeah. When I came back from uh, Beijing, um, then the first prime minister of Cambodia asked me to be his advisor on women's affairs. I said, fine, I'll be there. And then I joined the party and I got elected. And then I became, I was offered this post as a women minister. So I was the minister for five years. First moment that I was officially recognized and I took over the ministry, it was very clear that The ministry had no vision, had no no mission statement, nothing. We started with, because I came from the women's movement, so I brought the movement into the ministry. The women said, the first thing you need to do, Madam Minister, is to change this Cambodian proverb that says, men are gold and women are just a white piece of cloth. Can you imagine? Gold, men are gold.
0: Men are gold and women are just a white piece of cloth. Why a white piece of cloth, though?
1: Virginity. Pure. And your whole body, your whole life has to be pure. You start as a virgin. If you're not a virgin, forget it. You are outcast. If you don't serve your husband, you are a bad woman, an ugly woman, a spoiled woman, a spoiled woman uh not a white piece of cloth so you have to be a white piece of cloth
0: oh my goodness so so how do you navigate this because it's i don't i don't imagine that it is easy to to navigate you know a, a, a culture that is like that which essentially has taken an aspect of this culture to make it a law
1: it's like a, the women's constitution it's still part of a psyche it's still part of our minds of our a you know, behind your, your head, you always say, am I white enough? I'm, I'm, I'm still that white piece of cloth. To me, I still, you know, like the, right now, I wear, uh, a dress with that, uh, with, with short sleeves, right? In front of a man. That's not being a white piece of cloth, right? And it's still in the, he- stuck in my head. You're now the minister. So Madame Mu the minister. Do something about it. I was challenged by, by the activist, uh, in Cambodia. And then we say, okay, let's change this proverb. Uh, we changed it to women are precious gems of Cambodia. And men, you can be gold, but we are the precious gems. We are the Niri Ratanak. And it became even, it became in the national program and it remains as a national program to, until today and we started in 1998 yeah this is 2022 then you look at look up the national program of women's ministry in Cambodia is that symbol women are precious gems
0: you know this is amazing i i can sense the excitement in your voice because that is something that i mean changing something that is entrenched in a culture is is definitely an amazing um, achievement and accomplishment. But you do this amazing thing, and at some point you you are at loggerheads with the with the then uh, uh, leadership of the country. Uh, what happens?
1: That's because I refuse to be that white piece of cloth. I refuse to have Cambodian women wrapped as a used as a white piece of cloth because Cambodian women. Uh, even as, uh, starting as a girl, you need to go to school. You know, if a white piece of cloth cannot go to school. You have to be uh, serving your husband, your father, your whoever, your brother. How can you have an education? So you have to fight for women for, and to have education for women. For reproductive, reproductive health. Women who are young girls who are raped. Uh, who are sold in human trafficking. And there are cases and cases and cases because of that, because Cambodia is such a poor country. You The women, will ne- the girls will never come out as a white piece of cloth. That's finished. And that's why we had a strong, strong campaign against human trafficking. I was recognized by that. And another uh, part of the legacy uh, was to have the um, prevention of domestic violence the law against domestic violence, um, based on uh, women as precious gems. You know, otherwise, um, if without that uh, law, if you are raped, you are um, uh, assaulted within the family, there's no law to support you, to help you, to protect you, because you're supposed to be that white piece of cloth. So there was a... The law was adopted, and it, in the law, we had a, a special article. We redefined the terminology for family because during the war, when people came back, after the war, when people came back to uh, to wherever, their homes, their old homes, they couldn't find. So they all lived together under one roof, yeah? And so if you are a young girl, you are a woman by yourself, you need to be under one roof with strangers because of the war. And if you are uh, raped, you are assaulted physically or abused uh, sexually, you're part of the family, uh, then uh, there's no protection. That's why in this law, uh, the word family is anybody living under the same roof so that women can be protected.
0: Now, Sokua, you um today... um you know, are still very much um, involved in affecting Cambodia. In fact, to the point that you are a wanted individual in Cambodia, there is a warrant out for your arrest. Until uh, a few weeks ago, you were sentenced, you and many other democracy voices and justice and uh, freedom voices, uh, were sentenced up to 36 years, is it, in prison?
1: Yeah, I have 36 years.
0: So right now they, you have a sentence for 36 years in prison. Why is that? What, how did you end up becoming someone who has such a sterling legacy? You've served your country well, but here you are today in exile and you, you have been sentenced to 36 years in prison.
1: My journey for justice for women, the gender justice, went all the way to, uh, workers in in the factories you know there are close to a billion uh, factory workers in Cambodia and uh, 90% of them are women so i was very, as a women's minister of course i looked after working conditions of the women in the factories the ruling party was not happy with me because i come from a smaller party uh, although i'm the minister and then one day, uh, one of the workers was killed. And there were many strikes um, when the workers was were killed. And uh, that worker was not just a worker. He was the leader of the union, the first union in Cambodia, Chivichia. I remember 22nd uh, January 2004, I decided that justice had to be served to the workers. If I were to stay longer in this government, I would also either be kicked out, go to jail, or be killed. Then I left that day. On that day, joined and joined the opposition in two thousand four, and I've stayed with that uh, opposition until today. So that we are not just an opposition. The Cambodian National Rescue Party is. We have over forty four percent of the popular vote, and that's under elections that are not even free and fair. And then that's why the the ruling party and the prime minister of Cambodia has been prime minister for the past uh, 37 years, close to 40 years now. Um, he had to dissolve our party. But we continue, we continue to speak, uh, to defend. Now it becomes more for the land of the people, of the farmers who lost their land. To economic land concessions, to deforestation, to corruption. Um, now I become, I moved from gender justice to justice in general, to the social, uh, the system, uh, to democracy. And my voice gets louder and louder because I became a vice president of the uh, party and the president of the party is still was in jail and still under, uh, facing court, um, Prosecution it is in Cambodia, and I had with other uh, leaders we we fled the country, and that's why we are in exile. But from exile, we fight a bigger agenda, which is democracy, human rights. Uh, we fight for free and fair elections.
0: I mean, what a what a story, what a journey. Your daughters. I want to. I want to go back to where we started from in our conversation. We were talking about your parents. We talked about you leaving as a young lady and then coming back and uh, having your daughters and some of the things that your parents hoped for and some of the things that I think you hope for your daughters. And I want to try and tie a link here between the two and say, how do you when you look at your daughters today what are your what are your desires for them the things that you would wish they would be able to do as you look at the gaps in your life and say these are the gaps in my life girls this is what i'd love for you to to do
1: i am very proud of my daughters they are very independent my daughters today there is a generational gap between my daughters who are very feminist you know and may I yes I I fight for uh, gender justice I fight for women to be educated and to to be prime ministers and all that but there is still a sense of me that uh, has to balance out the, this white piece of cloth it's incredible uh, do I go all the way do I really want to be the um, president of this party I could but I don't want to, because there's a part of me that says you should really be saving some time at home. My and my daughters are saying are fighting a different kind of world for just justice for me, women today. It's different from just this for women that I fight for. Uh, they don't fight for um, the kind of education that uh, starting from ABC. Uh, they fight. Today, women today, if they they continue to fight, to fight for, uh, like in America, it's really, really unfortunate. It's, it's not acceptable that women cannot have uh, control of their own bodies to make their own choice. How can you go back to that? And I can't believe that my daughters uh, today, women of today in America or other parts of the world where uh, abortion is not legal, have to still deal with it.
0: When you think about what you fought for in Cambodia, what you still fight for today in Cambodia, and you look at America's democracy, what are your concerns, Sokua?
1: My concern is that democracy, that that America does not look at the um, fighting for democracy as a long-term thing. It's a crisis today, and tomorrow is another crisis, you know, crisis after crisis. Yeah, where are the values? And my my uh, other worries is that uh, the society, American society today, is very divided. How are you going to reconcile the differences? Yeah, and the injustice, the um racial injustice uh, in America, a country that is should that is so so rich, but yet. You look at people who are so poor, so poor. You know that when I, I drive around in Providence, I'm in Providence now, it We're part of Providence where it's so poor, uh, the streets are very dirty. Um, how could it be America? Well, America has to fix something. Uh, but at the same time, I am very, very grateful that because it is in America, in because I am in America, I can say what I have want to say without the fear of being arrested or being killed.
0: Mm, and that's a really powerful reconciliation, you know, the ability you have to look at a nation that has its flaws and yet still appreciate the value of what it has in the kind of freedom uh, that is here. Thank you for, for highlighting that for us to hear. I feel like I want to ask one last question before we close this, Sokoa, and it's a difficult question for me to ask. And I don't know how you would answer it, but if you were to imagine yourself sitting with your parents today uh, as a grown woman with your children and the journey you've walked and you tell them about this life that you have lived, what do you imagine your parents' response would be today?
1: First, I want to ask my mother, what was it like to let me go? I saw the I still remember the pain. I feel the pain. And I want to say, I'm sorry I left. But I'm not sorry because now I am who I am. And you have beautiful granddaughters, great-granddaughters, grandchildren. I wish... Today, that my mother could be on the same journey and could give me some support along that journey because I think she would have given me a lot of uh, comfort. Um, there were moments of uh, great pain because I was in jail as well. There were moments of um, looking at police coming at me with their batons and their tear gas uh, tubes and all that and always having to say, I am strong, I must be strong. There are moments when I want to be with my mother and say, like when I was an eight-year-old daughter and say, I am comfortable being with you, learning the alphabet. However, uh, I am really, really, really fortunate to be born in a family, in a culture, in a country that has gone through all this, but still, be a gentle people.
0: So, Kua, you 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 answered a very difficult question, and I, I I think I think that will do because it's it's taught me it's taught me something, which is the value of validation from our parents, but I think also the value of being able to tell your parents, not just what they mean to you, but what it is, your value of them. Um, And your story is very rich in all of that. And even though I know that one of the greatest mysteries of your life is trying to figure out how the lives of your parents ended and where they are, I think somewhere in your heart, there's a special place where, where they live, where you have... Uh, these conversations about how well they did for you and how well you've done with the decisions that they made for you.
1: Yeah, I wish I could go back home. I would do everything, not for me. I'm not the only one who is in exile. Many other colleagues are in exile. Many other human rights activists like you, they went in exile we we belong where we we started back home.
0: Musa, it has been more than an honor to talk with you. and I think we got so much more than we we set out to get from our conversation here today. And I want to thank you. Thank you so much for being with us on the front lines of freedom.
1: Thank you. I will continue to listen to your podcast because it gives me uh, the strength to uh, take the next step.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Mu from Cambodia, a woman who has given her life for so many people that she will never meet people whose lives have changed and lives are still changing because of the stand that she took and what she gave her life for. But also a woman who is on a journey still, uh, a journey to not just finish the job of freeing Cambodia, but a journey to free her own life. The search for her parents, you heard us talk about it. I love the fact that she's journeying it now with her daughters and that they share similarities and that she has certain things that she tells them not to do that she did or things that she didn't do that she wants them to do. But importantly, that she accepts that they are also their own people that are dealing with their own struggles. And I think that's the... That's the beauty of being a, an individual who feels strongly about something and then gives birth to people who will emulate that life, uh, but also live their own lives. I hope that as you listened, you've been encouraged, you found something, something that's spoken to your life. But uh, thank you for joining us. Do me a favor, will you? Send this podcast to a friend, and get them to listen in on this amazing conversation. It might just just help them deal with some difficult things that they're dealing with. From the front lines of freedom, it's uh, Pastor Ivan Mawaride here from Renew Democracy Initiative. Thank you for joining us, folks. Bye-bye.